From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, Today, Egypt, and the Struggle for Democracy, an international town hall brought to you by America Abroad Media and KCRW. More than two years ago, Egypt was rocked by protests that brought President Hosni Mubarak's regime to an end. Those were days of hope for those who rallied in the streets of Cairo and elsewhere. It was the Arab Spring. It was the dawn of democracy in Egypt. Or was it? Since that time, we've seen the fall of President Mohamed Morsi and a violent crackdown on his party, the Muslim Brotherhood. The Brotherhood is also engaged in violence. The way forward now is unclear. And to sort through all of this today, we have a special opportunity to talk directly to people in Egypt to hear where they think their country is going. I'm here in Los Angeles with a live audience. Hello, LA. And let's hear from Egypt. A big round of applause in Egypt. Hello, Egypt. In a few minutes, we'll actually meet the Egyptian audience. First, joining me on stage here in Los Angeles, Maha Awad. She is an Egyptian-American host, producer, and media consultant who lived and worked in Egypt for 14 years before returning to Los Angeles a few years ago where she grew up. Hello, Maha. Hi, Madeline. And next to her, Sarah El-Tantawi. She's a postdoctoral fellow in Arab studies at UC Berkeley where she specializes in political Islam in the contemporary Muslim world. Welcome, Sarah El-Tantawi. Thank you very much. Let's review with you two right now for our audience in America what has happened in Egypt recently. This June 30th, there was a massive uprising, massive protest, even bigger than the protests held to oust Mubarak. And Maha, let's begin with you. Tell us what happened. Morsi was ousted shortly after those protests. So basically what happened is um, people got very fed up. So um, ultimately a movement began called Tamarud, which means rebellion in Arabic. There was a petition, and they managed to get 22 million signatures on this petition, and then the Egyptians, feeling empowered from what they had done on January 25th, took to the streets again. Arguably, as we were saying, even bigger numbers than the first time around, somewhere between 17 to 33 million people took to the streets in a symbolic vote of no confidence, asking Morsi to step down. He refused to step down. He made a speech where he spoke over and over and over about his legitimacy and having been voted in democratically and so on. And so General Assisi and the military, in order to kind of save Egypt from spiraling into a state of chaos, came in, took over, and gave him an, a 48-hour ultimatum to step down. And when he did not, they deposed him. And Sarah, you were actually there during those June 30th uh, protests. What did you see? What did it look like? And what I saw was a very, very wide swath of the Egyptian population represented on the street, everything from liberals to very conservative Muslims, really a wide spectrum that was expressing anger with the way not only that the Morsi government behaved governmentally, but with the kind of cultural message that the Muslim Brotherhood had sent in that year. And people really felt that the Egypt that they knew, the sense of Egypt that they had was somehow under threat. Okay, this is a perfect opportunity to go to Egypt now and find out more about what happened on the ground. And we have a group of Egyptians in Cairo, as well as the former foreign minister, Rauf Saad, at the studios of a television channel called On TV there in Cairo. Our host is Rami Radwan. Hi, Rami, and hello to your guests. Hi, Madeline. How are you? As you just said, I have my guest over here, Mr. Ambassador Rauf Saad. He's the former assistant of the foreign minister here in Egypt. Hello, sir. Yes, hello. Hi, Madeleine. 
And also, just like the wonderful audience you have there in LA, I have a wonderful audience here in Cairo, and my regards as well to your panelists. I just want to start off by asking you a general question, and maybe you want to pose this to a few of your audience members. Tell us, what is life there now since uh, Mohamed Morsi was removed in July and General Abdul Fattah al-Sisi took over? What is life there now like for you? Okay, let me take that to my audience. Well, may, may, may I interrupt here? Yeah, sure, please. Well, Madeleine, I, I hate to differ with you from the very beginning, but in fact, what happened on 25th of January was a revolution, and, you know, as it was explained, we, we went through a, a kind of very difficult elections between two persons. That was a very difficult choice. But we ended up by having the Muslim Brothers and Dr. Morsi in power. The election was, I authorize you, you deliver. So we authorized, and he failed. So we had to go to the streets. You want to call it a revolution or coup d'etat? Well, it was 20 million, 25, even 10 million. Be it, I don't care about how you name it. But what's important that the Egyptian people, and this is something that you have to realize that the Egyptian people has become a major factor in the political equation in Egypt. And well, you and your question, you said that, well, Crackdown. Morsi was not removed because there was a crackdown on the Muslim Brothers. Morsi was removed because the people wanted him to leave his post. And since we don't have a mechanism for a change like the one you have, the army had to intervene. Otherwise, it could have waited and we could have a bloodshed. And uh, that's okay, why... So Thank you, Ambassador. Those are the views of the Ambassador Raouf Saad. I want to hear from a few Egyptian members of the audience now, Rami, if that's possible. Sure, Madam. Uh, to my audience over here, uh, Ali wants to know how do you see life now in Egypt after the oust of uh, Mohamed Morsi? Uh, I'm a journalist. We are demo, uh, demonstrating uh, weekly, uh, but uh, daily, uh, against what happened despite security. Uh, uh, restrictions. I okay, I uh, so Ahmed basically is saying, I think Ahmed is an Islamic journalist, right Ahmed? Yeah. Okay, and he's saying that uh, right after the revolution in uh, the 30th of June, they have been protesting uh, weekly in, in Egypt because they are against what has happened in the 30th of June. Anyone wants to add something different? Okay, please. Uh, my name is Ahmed Yahya. I'm a researcher at Islamic Groups Affairs. Okay. okay. Um, I want to say that Islamists in Egypt are not only Muslims brotherhood. Most notably... So, so excuse me, Ahmed, what you're basically trying to say here is that uh, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood are not the only Islamic group here in yes. Egypt. This is what you mean, Yes, basically. and there is another movement, another groups, and there's also Salafi. Salafist okay. movements are uh, very huge. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Ahmed. Does anyone have another? Okay, please. My name is Hagar Gamil. I am a journalist uh, and I am a mass media researcher. I think that hope has returned to Egyptians after uh, 30 June because they had success in the process of political transition. They have proved all over the world that uh, Morsi wasn't president for all Egyptians. He was a uh, president serving only his group uh, opinions and uh, what they want, so he wasn't a president for all Egyptians, and this was proved in uh, 30 June. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Okay, Madeline, I think we have three points of view now. Back to you, Madeline. Okay, thank you very much, Rami. And I just want to see if uh, one of our panelists here, Sarah El Tantawi, wants to respond to anything she's just heard from Egypt. Well, it's wonderful to hear from Egypt, and it just really reinforces this interesting idea that 
the way that the events of June 30th and July 3rd are understood in the Western media, in Western analysis, by and large, which sort of says this is a coup, this is a huge setback for democracy, is really so different, I always find, and I'm hearing it again today, from what Egyptians in Egypt say. And so I think that one of the interesting aspects of this is that we need to reconceptualize what we mean by democracy and what a real political transition in Egypt is actually going to look like that works for the Egyptians. And I would also just quickly amplify a point that the ambassador made, which is I agree that what happened on June 30th was a, a kind of referendum on Morsi. And one thing that, to make clear is that in the Egyptian constitution, the only legal way to have done this is for a two-thirds vote in parliament. But Egypt did not have a parliament. So, in fact, there was no legal way for Egyptians to censure their president except for street politics. Maha Awad? Yeah, and I was just going to say, to Sarah's point, I think that this is definitely the misconception and what's created a lot of um, anger and so on between Egyptians at large and seeing how the Western media is looking at it is that I think that people really feel that they needed to do this, that they needed to find a way to express that this just could not continue and could not wait it out another three years. And, and as Sarah was saying, there is no legal recourse for them really to take that kind of action. And so they had no choice. And I think that they get frustrated feeling like Western media does not necessarily, or Western forces altogether, don't necessarily understand that their hands were tied outside of this kind of action. All right, I want to open it up now to questions from our Los Angeles audience. And I believe we have a question from Leila Ibrahim. Hello, Egypt. My question is um, to the Egyptian people, how things in the university and the colleges, because I see on TV a lot of demonstration and um, the Brotherhood of Muslims is not let it go, and the university is the core area for them to win. So I'm wondering how are we handling uh, at the university level? My name is Hagar Gamil. Uh, I think that life is going uh, on very uh, normally, especially in universities and in uh, schools, because Muslim Brotherhood members in schools or in universities are not such big number like other uh, students. So whenever they make a demonstrations in the schools, there is a security uh, solution for this. and. Um, Life is going normally, uh, okay. I think, in Egypt. Thank you, Hagar. I think you have something to add, Yahya? I, I want to say that before the revolution in January, uh, Muslims Brotherhood was doing protests in the university, especially Cairo University. They have a big movement there. So uh, what they're doing there uh, today in the university is not new thing. And Mr. Ambassador, have something to add in, in, in this uh, issue? Well. A piece of information that you might not, might not be aware of, that the military or General Sisi in his meeting with the political forces did not ask even for a roadmap. He asked for early presidential elections, but it was the political forces who put this roadmap. And now, and that's my second point, the roadmap is being implemented 
literally uh, within a time frame that we want to respect and everybody wants to. And as you are, might be hearing that we have a, now, the major event is happening now is the, uh, the, the Constitutional Committee, which is working very hard. The government is working very hard under very uh, exceptional circumstances to improve the economy, to have uh, uh, more stability in the country. And as you can see, so many countries have already removed their warning for the tourists who come to Egypt. Uh, third, and this is, I, I hope you remember that, reaching power was the first time for the Muslim Brothers in all their history. And they failed and they lost this opportunity. Now they are losing their second opportunity by uh, refusing to join the political process and trying to disturb the country and to terrorize, in fact, people everywhere. Thank you, Ambassador. We have a question in the audience now. I think that goes directly to your point, Ambassador. Salam, everybody in Cairo. Uh, my name is Allah Ali El Tantawi, and I am uh, American Egyptian for 45 years. And I have a question for you guys. What do you think of the possibility of Sisi running for president? And if he does, won't this really be a coup? Okay, let me take that to our audience first. Okay, uh, Mustafa again. I don't think uh, that uh, Mr. Abdel Fattah Sisi, uh, the uh, defense minister, uh, will run for uh, presidency because uh, he announced before that he will not run for it. And he said that uh, he just uh, did what people here, Egyptians, I mean, uh, wanted. But this does not mean he, he has no chance. If he did run for uh, presidency, I think that... Uh, um, Would it be a call, called a coup at that time? No, no, no. It's not a coup. Brotherhood members, they said before that they, uh, he did a coup. But we, Egyptians, uh, said no, it's not a coup. And we rallied in, in Tahrir Square and every place in Egypt on uh, 3 June. Uh, so uh, if he wants to be president, uh, we need him to be president. This Around. is uh, your point of view, thank yeah. you, Mustafa. Okay. Uh, I think someone else uh, had a point. Okay, please, Haga. Uh, again, introducing myself, my name is Hagar Gamil. Um, I don't think that Mr. Abdel Fattah Sisi will run for a presidency because it will be, uh, we will um, activate what uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, and uh, Islamist uh, persons said that it will be a military coup. We have uh, some uh, groups uh, calling for um, uh, General Abdel Fattah Sisi to uh, run for presidency, but I think that uh, his intelligence will be more than this and will, he will uh, not do this. Okay, thank you. Uh, Madeline, can we, uh, okay, I'm, I'm back to you. If there are more, uh, any more questions from your audience over there? Yeah, well, I have a question for you. We've heard a lot of viewpoints in favor of uh, what happened with the ouster of Mohamed Morsi in July. I'm wondering if there's anyone there in the audience who doesn't look upon that favorably and who was against the action by General Sisi and his forces. Okay, I think we have someone who uh, is an Islamic researcher. Look at the people خريطه الطريق اللي قالها قبلها بيوم مرسي قالها يعني الرئيس مرسي هو قال الخريطه الطريق كلها 
وما كانش فيه وقت يعني ما اعتقدش ان هم يدوا الرئيس مرسي فتره. So what Ahmed is saying over here is that he's totally against what has happened in June 30th and what has General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi did because what he's saying that the roadmap that the people called for and that General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi decided to implement he says that Mohamed Morsi before his oust uh, he uh, put this roadmap already, but he didn't have time to implement it. However, he's saying that Morsi was not a successful president. He has a lot of errors, but he's saying that he didn't have much time to implement the roadmap that people were uh, calling for. May Mr. Ambassador, I think, is, is disagreeing a bit with this point of view. We have to remember that when uh, former President Morsi refused the early presidential elections, and in fact, that would could have been tolerated. But the fact is that you give a warning that, well, either I stay in power or that the alternative is a bloodshed. And that's why the military had two choices, either to wait till we have a bloodshed or to intervene to preempt a bloodshed. Okay, thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Back to you, Madeline. All right, thank you, Rami. And we're gonna take a short break. Uh, before we go, I just wanna see if Sarah El-Tantawi or Maha Awad have any thoughts on what we've just heard. Well, again, very, very interesting to hear from Cairo. I want to push the ambassador, if I can, a little bit on the last point. I do see his logic about avoiding bloodshed, and I do share the opinion that Morsi was very intransient in his final days and in his last speech. But at the same time, what does the ambassador say about the bloodshed that the army caused in breaking up the Rabah Adawaya Nahda protests? Um, was that necessary to shed that blood? Well, here I want you just to just to be fair. When a, a military is interfering to disperse tens or hundreds of thousands of people, right? How can you understand that in the first three hours, at least 40 police officers were killed, which means that there were tons of weapons therein. And, and to, that's my very personal interpretation. I think that the, the Muslim brothers, at least the leaders, for the people who were following. But the Muslim leaders were very much inviting for violence and inviting for even victims in order to make a case. But had there been the intention to crack down or kill the people, the military and the police could have intervened at a very early stage. But they waited for too long. And we could not tolerate that the country is being a hostage for a group of people who want to paralyze the, 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 the country and put it in a stalemate that, we, that it cannot move forward. Okay, thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Back to you, Madeline. Thank you, Rami. And Maha Awad here in Los Angeles has something to say, a few comments here on that. Just uh, listening to the ambassador's take on things, and, and I just want to say that from my perception here, watching Western media once again, and I bring it to that, I think that um, the Muslim Brotherhood did a, quite a, a good job of presenting things to the Western media and having the right people speak and so on that maybe presented things not very um, accurate to how they were on the ground. I think that um, watching Arab media and also just being in touch with people there, I've seen a lot of proof, including videos and so on, that they were not the passive sit-ins that they were uh, claiming them to be. And regardless of whether the military handled it in the best possible way or not, it was definitely not this one-sided violent crackdown that they managed to portray to the Western media. Interesting. All right. We're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, the military government has outlawed the Muslim Brotherhood and arrested its top leaders. Will that permanently weaken them or 
just push the group underground and set the stage for future problems. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Egypt and the Struggle for Democracy, an international town hall discussion from America Abroad Media and KCRW in Santa Monica. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Egypt and the Struggle for Democracy on America Abroad, an international town hall brought to you by America Abroad Media and KCRW in Santa Monica. I'm joined by on-TV host Rami Radwan and Ambassador Rauf Saad, former Assistant Foreign Minister of Egypt there in Cairo, with a diverse group of Egyptians. Hi, Rami, and hello to your guests in Cairo. Hi, Madeline, and a big hi again to your audience and panelists there in L.A. Well, in this part of the program, I really want to take a step back and explore how we got here. And this idea of democracy in Egypt is relatively new. Sarah El-Tantawi is here with me on stage in Los Angeles. She researches at UC Berkeley, where she specializes in political Islam. And I'm also joined here in LA by Maha Awad. She's an Egyptian-American journalist. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And Sarah, let's start with you. In the modern era, the Muslim Brotherhood has played what role in Egypt? Well, so since the Free Officers Revolution in 1952, where Gamal Abdel Nasser and a group of military officers gained Egypt's independence once and for all from the British crown, essentially, from that period, basically until today, there has been a kind of dance between successive military dictatorships in Egypt and the Islamist resistance, the Muslim Brotherhood, of course, being the largest Islamist group, not only in Egypt, but in the whole region. And so that dynamic has been going on. And I think by the time we get to the Mubarak era, it is so entrenched that they have a parasitic relationship with each other. The Muslim Brotherhood really evolved into a mainly resistance movement. And so they couldn't have that sense of victimization and resistance. And of course, I'm you know not trying to downgrade their victimization. They've been in and out of jail for 80 years. But they, you know, it became a, a, a kind of foundational identity for them too, vis-a-vis -vis and against these the, these successive military dictatorships. So the military dictatorships were able to use them to dangle them in front of Egyptians and say, well, if you don't support us, these guys are going to come into power. Absolutely. Not only in front of Egyptians, but in front of the international community. I think also um, once there was the opportunity and, and Morsi was elected and they had their first chance at any kind of, of political power, I think one thing that frustrated people a lot was their almost intentional ambiguity about how they perceived Islam and politics. They've never actually made it clear whether they want to exercise Sharia law or whether they want to be moderate about it. It was never clear. And I think for a lot of people, this was a very frustrating point of not knowing where we're going with these people, in addition to all the things that subsequently went downhill. All right. Thank you, Maha. And of course, there are Islamic democracies in other places of the world, uh, Indonesia, Turkey, Malaysia, for example. Is it possible to have an Islamic democracy in Egypt? And I want to go to Egypt now, where we have a diverse group of Egyptians at the on-TV television studios in Cairo. Our moderator there is Rami Radwan, and Rami is also joined by the Egyptian ambassador Raouf Saad. And I'd, I'd like to start with him. Ambassador, do you think it's possible that we can have an Islamic democracy in Egypt. I think that has been proved throughout history that there was never a successful story 
with having a regime associated with religion. I think there should be a separation. If you say Islamic democracy, then you are talking about Christian democracy and another Jewish democracy. I, I, I don't think that, you know, that that has been proved to be an experience to be copied. And I think the lesson that we are learning and before us, the world has learned is that you have a complete separation between politics and religion. However, I want to stress here that according to all our constitutions and the one in the making now, that there is a, a clear provision that would uh, stipulate that the principles of Islamic Sharia or the Islamic law will be the basis for the law in Egypt. And that's where you have a linkage. But if you go further than that, then you are mixing and uh, leading to hurting both politics as well as religion. Okay, thank you. I think someone had some questions for uh, the audience uh, there in, in LA. I, I want to, to ask uh, the guests and the audience how can they define the Islamic democracy? Okay, thank, thank you. you. Hagar, you had a question? Yes. My name is Hagar Gamil, a journalist and a mass media researcher. I want to know uh, Americans' uh, point of view about what has gone in Egypt uh, in uh, 30 June. Thank you, Hagar. Okay, uh, uh, back to you, Madeline. All right, I will pose those questions to our audience and see if anyone wants to step up to the microphone. Uh, let's go with that last one first. What is your view, your general view of what happened on June 30th here in America when you see the news coverage on TV, on the radio, in newspapers? Uh, my name is uh, Fadi Youssef. I'm also an Egyptian-American. And uh, I kind of wanted to say that when I was watching what was happening, it was very interesting because for 80-some years, like uh, one of the panelists was mentioning, the Muslim Brotherhood were somewhat marginalized and victimized. And for one year of power, they were able to get the majority of people in Egypt that were not even involved in politics to stand up and say, this is not what we were looking for. And I think it says something about freedom of speech when you finally allow those guys to have a forum to speak and share their ideology without any fear they collapsed, uh, which is an argument that was made with one of the well-known liberal thinkers in Egypt, uh, Farag Fouda. For years, he wrote about uh, the idea of political Islam and how it does not exist even in history. And uh, he also said that if you want to defeat extremists, allow them the forum to speak and to act. And he was advocating for them to be in, in ministry and have uh, positions of power in the government. And um, he was assassinated actually a couple miles from where I used to live because of his ideas. So I think it just poses an interesting view of uh, freedom of speech and what it can do. Madeline, I want to comment really quick. Mm -hmm. This is Maha. <laughs> just to what was just being said, I think that there was a lot of people. There was the view that, you know what, give them the chance. Let them mess up themselves, and they will, because of exactly that. Because historically, it has been a problem for them. The political the political side of it is, is a problem for them to actually manage and maintain and do it well. And it's true. For many people, we gave them the chance, and they messed it up so bad that we just could not take anymore. Well, let me then go a little bit further with that idea and send this question back to you, Rami, and whoever wants to answer this, the ambassador or members of your audience, and that is, well, when then we're talking about democracy, now that the Muslim Brotherhood has been outlawed and its leaders arrested or have fled the country, then how are they able to express their views freely? How are you able to have a democracy moving forward if the Muslim Brotherhood is not allowed to participate? Okay, so Mr. Ambassador, are the Muslim Brotherhood in the first place not allowed to participate now in the political life in, in Egypt? Well, I think this is again a misunderstanding that we will have to rectify. Uh, but let me first 
tell you that when you say arrested, it means that as if they are detained. We don't have a detainees here. I mean, all those who were arrested, whether leaders or members of Muslim Brothers, are people that have cases before the court, and that's why they are being treated according to the law. Uh, but that does not mean that they are arrested without a, a, a legal uh, procedure that is being applied by the uh, executive power. And by the way, let me remind you, Madeleine, that they were invited so many times to join the Constitution Committee, to join the political process, and they in publicly declared their refusal to do that. So again, the, the ball is in their court, and they're still invited. After all, they are Egyptians. I mean, it's, we, are, we are not denying them the rights to express their views. However, the experience has proved that for them either to control and dominate or they don't take part with others. Let me take that also, Madeline, to my audience over here. And I want Ahmad to answer this, especially because I think he's a very good researcher in the Islamic parties and their presence in the political life. Uh, Ahmed has said that all the Islamists in Egypt now are being rejected from the political life. They are not allowed to take part in the political life in Egypt. So he's saying he doesn't see that we're moving towards democracy. And if he's talking about all Islamists, I have to go to Ahmed who said that he's a Salafi. Right, Ahmed? Ahmed Abdullah, Salafi Salafi. احنا شاركنا في في الحياه السياسيه شاركنا في كتابه الدستور وشاركنا في في الامور السياسيه بعد 30 يونيو احمد از سلفي اند هي جاست سيد ذات حزب النور ويتش از ذا بارتي ذات ريبريزنتس ذا سلفيز هير ان ايجيبت از بارت اوف ذا كوميتي ناو ذات از دوينج ذا كونستيتيوشنال اماندمنتس اند ذات حزب النور اور ذا نور بارتي هاز بين بارت اوف ذا بوليتيكال بروسيس رايت افتر ذا 30th اوف جون ريفولوشن اند سو هي سيز ذات وي ار وركينج اون بيلدينج ذا رايت ديموكراسي اند وي ار بارت اوف ذا اسلاميك سوسايتي هير ان ايجيبت اند وي ار بارت اوف ذا بوليتيكال بروسيس ان ايجيبت اي ثينك وي هاف وان مور كومنت بليز كان يو انتدوس يور سيلف محمد الموجي ان اكتور اي وونت تو ساي ذير از ان اجريمنت نوت تو استابليش اني بوليتيكال بارتيز اون ريليجن And that uh, came after the popular demands. Okay. That's okay. what I want to say. Uh, so what he's saying now is that the, the committee now that is uh, uh, meant to do the constitutional amendments, all its members have refused the presence of any party in Egypt that has a religious uh, background. There was an earlier question from Egypt, and I wanted to see if you could answer it, Sarah, and that is how would you define an Islamic democracy? That's the million-dollar question now, because I think one of the underappreciated results of June 30 onward is that political Islam in Egypt has been dealt a really stunning blow. And what happens in Egypt tends to reverberate in the Arab world. So this is actually the first peaceful grassroots uprising in the modern Middle East against Islamism. And we don't really talk about that, but it is true. And so there was a discussion in Cairo um, here just now about the Constitution and, and, and somebody in the audience in Cairo mentioned that, yes, there is discussion now about banning all religious political parties. Of course, the Salafis are going to walk out of the Constitutional Committee if that happens. So there's a showdown happening now about this question of what is democracy, what is Islam, what is the proper role? And I think that... 
it looks to me that while it was a theoretical question, that we could do a lot of talking about something called Islamic democracy, but it looks like the example, at least strictly speaking in Egypt, it doesn't seem to be working in its current manifestation, and that Egyptian people, including pious, conservative Muslims, many of whom have come to a place now where they are saying no religion in politics. They even want to get rid of Article 2. Article 2 saying Islam is the official state religion and Sharia is the source of legislation for the country. That has been in the Egyptian constitution since 1971 in one form or another. It was never really seriously considered anything anyone can touch. And now for the first time, we're seeing very serious people saying, let's even get rid of Article 2. So this is all very different. Thank you, Sarah. And we have a question here in Los Angeles from a member of the audience. Hi. Well, hi. Can you say I'm, your name? I'm Kevin Iskander. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about the Egyptian people. And I just wanted to see um, if they can speak a little bit about the possible media biases in the coverage of the removal of Morsi and the protests that went on and how that has led to possible misconceptions here of the American people. So that question can be posed to the Egyptians there. So this is a question for you, Rami, and for your audience, and that is the media coverage in the United States and what your perception is as to whether or not it's been biased and has affected uh, American policymakers and the American public in a way that uh, perhaps doesn't jibe with what you see is happening there in Egypt. Okay, Madeline, let me post that to my audience over here. My name is Mohammed Osman, I am a journalist. As uh, media in USA always say, the cop, the cop, the cop. While Mr. Obama uh, said uh, revolution, not a cop. The media in USA, I think, um, always don't uh, uh, show the complete reality. Okay, okay. Thank you, Muhammad. So what he's trying to say over here is that uh, the media in the US have been uh, talking about what has happened in Egypt during the 30th of June, is that it's a coup, it's a coup, it's a coup. Uh, when, uh, uh, or coup d'etat, when uh, uh, President Obama in the General Assembly of the UN has talked about what has happened in Egypt on the 30th of June, that it is a revolution, okay? So he's asking, how does the media now see that? Uh, and he believes that the media in the US is a bit biased because they show just part of the reality, not the full uh, reality. Ahmed Fawzi, an actor and a scriptwriter. I want, uh, I want a definition uh, of, a military, of a military coup because if it's a military coup, leader, uh, military leaders must govern everything. They haven't the presidency. They haven't a prime ministry. All, all they did, they protect. Egyptians are uh, dreaming of. So I want a definition from American audience of a military coup. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So he's asking for a, a definition. How, what do you, how do you define a military coup at the time when what has happened in Egypt is that the military interfered to implement the people's will. So why is it called a coup, and what's the definition of a coup in, in, in such a, a way? Thank you, Rami. That's a really interesting question, and I think it's a question that uh, we've all been wrestling with, and so has the President of the United States by deliberately refusing to call it a coup. And I'm wondering if uh, Sarah El-Tantawi wants to take that on and, and try to address it. Why is it that the United States is struggling so much with defining what happened in Egypt? Well, a coup is a small group of military officers that move against a sitting president 
for reasons that are completely self-enclosed. In other words, those guys, it's always guys, right, want to take over the government. What happened in Egypt was absolutely that there was a mass popular revolt and that those people in that mass popular revolt, large amounts of them called for the army to go in and remove Morsi. And they knew, Egyptians knew what they were doing when they made that call. Now, so that part of it is not a coup. The army, yes, they did listen to the people, but of course they also have their own agenda. So that's, you know, a long story that we can diagnose. When did the military really turn against Morsi? Because as far as I'm concerned, the Egyptian military is happiest when there is a compliant civilian government. And that's what Morsi was for quite a while. He actually let the army control their own budget, which is something that the revolutionaries were very upset about. This is a revolutionary demand that the army come under the control of a civilian government. So actually, Morsi did a lot of things to please the military and the army. And my understanding is that they began to turn against him around the time that Sinai started to become more and more out of control and for some other reasons as well. So the point is, to the degree that the military had their own agenda, in addition to the popular mandate, that little aspect of it that's their own agenda can be called a coup. In terms of the question of why the United States can't figure this out, I think that's, to use the phrase, a strategically ambiguous move there too, because if the United States had called this a coup, then America would have been mandated by its own laws to suspend aid to Egypt, to the Egyptian military. If America suspended aid to the Egyptian military, then that disrupts the terms of the Camp David Agreement. It disrupts the very basic access of American policy in the region. And basically, the Americans didn't want to do that. Thank you, Sarah. And I think this is a perfect moment for a break. When we come back, how does Egypt move forward politically? You're listening to Egypt and the Struggle for Democracy, an international town hall discussion from America Abroad Media and KCRW. Welcome back to an international town hall, Egypt and the struggle for democracy from America abroad and KCRW. I'm Madeline Brand in Los Angeles, where we have a live studio audience. And we're also joined by an Egyptian audience in Cairo and TV host Rami Radwan, as well as Ambassador Rose Saad, former assistant foreign minister of Egypt. Hi, everyone. A big hi to Los Angeles. All right. Uh, in this part of the program, I want to hear how everyone thinks Egypt can move forward, or are the dreams of democracy dead for now? And, and I'd like to begin by asking both audiences in LA to comment, so get your questions ready. But first, I want to turn to Maha Awad, who's sitting next to me. She's an Egyptian-American journalist. And I just want to make the observation that it seemed that during the revolution to oust Hosni Mubarak, there was great unity, it seemed, at least from our perspective, in Tahrir Square, where a lot of different factions of Egyptian society got together and unified over this goal to rid the country of Mubarak. And now it seems, from what I can tell, that there is a lot of dissolution. And I wonder if that's something that you observed. Absolutely. I mean, uh, that moment was, was something that gave us all pause internationally, just seeing, you know, Christians and Muslims. And, and it seemed that everyone was united under one cause, which was that we need to get rid of this dictatorship. Subsequently, so many different things happened. And then the separation, obviously, once Mohamed Morsi took office, the separation religiously became an issue. 
it became so black and white. It was no longer, you know, there's degrees of religiosity in Islam. It's you're either with us or against us. It's you're either Muslim and supporting the Brotherhood, regardless of what they're doing, or you are an infidel. You can't be liberal. You can't have your own interpretation of Islam and so on. And I think that for me, just seeing, even seeing things on Facebook from my friends living there, I see so much anger on both sides that I had never seen before with Egyptians with other Egyptians and hatred and, and a kind of rage that really is disheartening. I'm glad that there is hope now. I hope that people are feeling that. And I seem to see a little bit of that now versus in that really heated period in early July. But it was, it was at the time very frustrating to see the divisions that have come to be. Rami, there in Egypt, I wonder if you can pose that same question to members of your audience. Do they feel the same thing that Maha Awad was just describing, that there is a level of anger and mistrust now amongst regular Egyptians that perhaps didn't exist a few years ago? All right, but uh, let me uh, first, Madeline, uh, Mr. Ambassador had, uh, wanted to comment. I think what I understood that she thinks that now there is more division among the Egyptian people. On the contrary, I think one of the major achievements of uh, former President Morsi that he brought Egyptians and Muslims much closer. The bonds between Muslims and Christians have never been stronger. Mm -hmm. And there is a reconciliation between the people and the military and the police. So I think the situation now, in spite of all media is portraying, I think now it's much more stronger. And that is the major asset that the government has in order to go forward uh, to stability. So okay, there... j just excuse me, because I want to repeat what Maha said, uh, because, uh, which is true, it's a fact. When you check out the interactions on Facebook, for example, or on Twitter, you don't find just diversion between the Egyptian community, but you find the level of hatred and the language that people use from different political views, and especially if you talk about two sides now, the Egyptian uh, community on one side and the Muslim Brotherhood, exactly. uh, you find the level of hatred or uh, the violence in the speech towards each other is a bit different than what we were used to. Well, that's very correct what you're, you're, you're saying, that. but now we have to be clear about that. how do we define the situation. It's between the majority of the Egyptian people and the Muslim Brothers on the other side. Uh, the, the language of hatred and violence is something that hurts our feelings because this is uh, unlike the Egyptians. That was Ambassador Rauf Saad. Right now we have someone in the American audience who has a question about life in Egypt and what she's hearing from her family. Hello everyone in Cairo. My name is Dina Nassar and my family lives in Mahal al-Kubra. That's where I'm from. And I was curious because when I've been speaking to them, Frankly, they sound depressed. None of them were pro-Morsi, although some of them voted for him. And they're certainly happy to see him go. But there's a low morale, I'm finding, when I'm talking to my, my cousins and my parents. And I'm just wondering if uh, how you guys are feeling, if you're feeling hopeful. I mean, this has been a very long fight, and it will certainly be a longer fight. So Rami, that's a question for members of your audience, and if they could just speak personally about how this has affected them in their daily lives. My name is Hagar Gamil. Uh, I'm a journalist and mass media researcher. Of course, there is uh, hope. Egyptians, uh, and I'm proud to be one of them, have learned this hope from first uh, 25th January 2011 uh, revolution and the second move of it in 30 June. Uh, I think that with hope, with work, um, Egyptians will uh, gain more uh, in the future and all these problems will be dissolved by time. 
Thank you so Thank much. You. Uh, just one final comment. Uh, it's Mustafa. I see that uh, every revolution uh, happened uh, all over the world has its own negative uh, consequences. And uh, that uh, I mean uh, here in Egypt too. We used to live in uh, security and uh, almost everything in our life was so good. Uh, you mean uh, so good in yeah. terms of security? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So what uh, you're trying to say is that life was secu secure before during Mubarak regime. Yeah. It's not very secured now. The most important thing that we really enjoyed is security, hmm. nothing else. So do you see tomorrow a better future? Do you see hope? You of have course, to... but we Egyptians uh, don't know, of course, the period that will... Uh, will uh, How much time we'll be living in yeah, those but, but, struggles but, but, until we end but hope, yeah, okay. but hope uh, exists uh, for sure. Okay, thank you a lot, Mustafa. Okay. I think, Madeline, now you have like a, a general uh, idea of some of the viewpoints regarding is there hope about a better uh, tomorrow in Egypt or no? Can old people have hope or not? Uh, Mr. Ambassador wants to add just a, a couple of, of comments. Let me tell you, Madeleine, if you look at the larger picture, I am one of those, I'm not as young as they are, but I'm so confident of the future. Why? Because we landed on democracy uh, road, and we know that we have still a long and hard way to go. But if you look at the situation, it's gradually improving. Stability is back gradually. Hard work is being uh, done for, to improve the economy. And what is more important that in, uh, we are heading to a civil democratic country. And now the constitution will have it in a matter of month or so. Then it will be followed by legislative elections so, so, and then presidential. What you're trying to say here is that we are now uh, paving or having the first steps on the road to democracy. On the, as long as we are on track and hear the point, the people, the Egyptian people for the first time maybe in their history, uh, they restored the ownership of the country and that is the guarantee for success. Okay, thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Back to All you, right, Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador, and thank you, Rami. I want to bring back Sarah El-Tantawi. She's a researcher at UC Berkeley and she specializes in political Islam. And Sarah, I'm wondering when you hear all this, you hear um, a lot of optimism, a lot of caution as well, and um, perhaps a lot of uh, confusion as to what's going to happen in the next few months. Are we going to see a return to a military-style dictatorship, or are we really, as the ambassador says, making great steps toward democracy in Egypt? Well, I think that optimism is good, and um, I believe in optimism as a strategy for Egypt. Um, I think that probably optimism is most rational for the very long term. The Egyptians have at this point had two experiments in bringing down unpopular governments, and they've made it very clear that they're not just going to sit back and accept the status quo. And so what I would say is that what we need to be doing is really keeping in mind what the real goals of the revolution are. And to put it very simply, ultimately the revolution of 2011 was a revolution against military dictatorship and the security and police state. And that has not really changed. I wonder if members of the audience there, Rami, disagree with that at all. And if they feel that they are under a military dictatorship still different personnel, but the same philosophy. Let me pose that to them. Ahmed Taha, sahafi. Of course, we have a dictatorial and we don't know if we're going to leave the night. We're going to leave the night until the end. That's the biggest reason. Okay, Ahmed is an Islamic researcher, and I was keen to let him say his comment first. 
uh, because I know his viewpoint is different than the other audience. And he said, yes, it's a, a military dictatorship. And the proof for that is that yeah. when we are uh, done now, he can't go back home because of the curfew. Uh, well, this is law uh, at the time being. Uh, let us take some other points of view as well. It's Ahmed again. Uh, two years ago, they called what's happened on January a revolution. And after two years, they called what's happened on June a military coup. So what is the difference between January and June? Uh, what you mean the in difference? terms of the military interference? Exactly. Of course, of okay. course. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Madeline, can I take that to you? Because it's a point of view that I would like to hear your guests and also the point of view of the uh, audience in LA. I think um, the difference is that when Mubarak was removed in 2011, that was because of a popular revolution and he had been a dictator. The idea here is that when Morsi was removed, he was democratically elected. That's the difference. Does anyone in our Los Angeles audience want to weigh in on this last point about the difference between the two uprisings, the one to remove Mubarak and the one to remove Morsi? My name is Amani Kamel, and I think that uh, maybe when they wanted to remove uh, uh, Mubarak, they wanted to remove a dictator, but uh, after they saw what the Muslim Brotherhood did, they'd rather go back to the Mubarak regime than stay with the Islamists. That's in my point of view. Hi, this is Dina Nassar again. You know, I've given this point some thought because I was very surprised to see how different the American response was to what happened in Egypt versus what I was seeing with my family members in Egypt. And I think that what makes it different in our minds here is that it's the visuals of it. It's a strong military taking down the underdog. That is one way to see it. Ma? Economically, I think people have huge concerns because the economy is still in a very unstable place and, and not so great. The main thing is people are slowly coming to terms with the fact that they have to be in it for the long haul. It's, it's going to take time. And but the main point that I think Egyptians feel, which cannot ever be neglected, is that Egyptians will not be silenced again. They have seen and they have tasted the kind of power that comes from having a voice and being able to express that voice and bring change. And I don't think that they will ever go back to being the more passive Egyptian people that we had of many years ago. And I think that that in and of itself is a huge thing to be reckoned with. All right. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you very much. I want to thank our audience in Egypt, and I want to thank our audience here in Los Angeles. Big round of applause from both countries. Thanks a lot, Madden. I think everybody enjoyed this uh, discussion, and I want to thank uh, American Abroad Media and all the crew behind this uh, discussion. Thanks to everyone, and I hope you enjoyed the experience as well. We certainly did. That concludes our town hall broadcast, Egypt and the Struggle for Democracy. And we'd like to thank our partners, KCRW, here in LA and On TV in Cairo. Thanks to On TV's Rami Radwan for guiding the discussion in Cairo and his guest, Ambassador Rove Saad. And thank you to my panelists here, Sarah El Tantawi and Maha Awad. Thank you both very much for joining us. And thank you, Los Angeles. This hour was produced by Samantha Fields, Christian Bordal, Haitham Sawi, and Flan Williams. The senior editor is Martha Little. We'd like to thank the Village Studios and everyone in LA who made this program possible. Tina Morris, Jeff Gartenbaum, Mark Bolt, and Bolt Media Group, Taryn Olson, Megan Gersh, and Nan Lieberman. 
We'd also like to thank our team in Cairo, Rasha El Shami, John Johanna, Osama Shaban, and Hafez Kayali. Additional thanks to Baha El Tawil. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show is provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by the Henry Luce Foundation and the Stewart Family Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.